There was a knock one morning, a man was standing at my door. He said, hello, I'm from Halliburton, have you heard of us before? We'd like to lease your backyard to drill for natural gas. It's called hydraulic fracturing, and it is the very past for a clean energy future above the Marcellus Stone. Plus, we'll give you lots of money and a new mobile phone. I said, you are a corporate crook. I don't believe the things you tell, and you can drive right off my property and then go straight to hell. No fracking way. No fracking way. I don't trust corporate salesmen, whatever they may say. No fracking way. 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 And that was an excerpt from David Rovick's song, No Fracking Way. You can find that entire song on the album, Big Red Sessions. Welcome to Fracky Very Much, a fracking terrible podcast. You can send me a message at fyvmshow at gmail.com. You go to frackyverymuch.com. You'll find all the back episodes there. Find a link to send a message. You'll also find some links there to make a donation. You can make a one-time or recurring donation to keep this podcast free and independent. First up is a story by Luke Savage. This is published at jacobinmag.com. Last week, the popular science journal Scientific American issued its first presidential endorsement in its 175-year history. Much of the editorial, which urges readers to support Joe Biden, is spent on well-founded condemnation of Donald Trump's environmental record, which the editors rightly associate with an anti-scientific approach to politics. Quote, The evidence in the science show that Donald Trump has badly damaged the U.S. and its people. Because he rejects evidence and science. That is why we urge you to vote for Joe Biden, who is offering fact-based plans to protect our health, our economy, and the environment. These and other proposals he has put forth can set the country back on course for a safer, more prosperous, and more equitable future. It's time to move Trump out and elect Biden who has a record of following the data and being guided by science. The sentiment reflects what has become the standard conception of climate change denial in politics. Anti-science politicians, or so the story goes, openly or implicitly reject scientific evidence in their decision-making, particularly vis-a-vis the environment. As a simple observation, this certainly makes sense. Most countries, after all, still have some subset of elected lawmakers who either deny or downplay the science of climate change. And thanks to the noxious culture of the Republican Party, this phenomenon is particularly acute in America. The problem is one that applies to virtually all political rhetoric. Merely acknowledging the reality of climate change means very little unless the sentiment is paired with commensurate action. Last week, as wildfires burned through the West Coast, liberal politicians like Gavin Newsom and Nancy Pelosi went rhetorically all in on the idea of imminent climate emergency. The former having approved some 48 new fracking permits since April, and the latter famously dismissing the Green New Deal. It's all well and good to call climate change, quote, the existential threat of our time, as Pelosi once did, But actualizing that belief requires a lot more than the perfunctory nod to science so regularly offered by liberal politicians. The same can be said about the Democratic presidential nominee who, like Pelosi, has boldly come out in favor of, quote, science on numerous occasions. During a recent CNN town hall, Biden made clear he doesn't support a ban on fracking, the practice of injecting chemicals into the ground at high pressure to extract natural gas. Quote, Fracking has to continue because we need a transition. We're going to get to net zero emissions by 2050, and we'll get to net zero power emissions by 2035. But there's no rationale to eliminate right now fracking. 
The United States is now one of the world's biggest fossil fuel exporters, and a massive increase in fracking, which it turns out may be an even worse contributor to climate change than previously thought, is a major reason. This means, as several prominent environmental leaders told Jacobin last year, that banning the practice is absolutely essential to any serious green agenda. As Mitch Jones of Food and Water Watch put it, quote, Having a fracking ban as a component of your climate plan is a litmus test for how seriously you're taking the problem of climate change. Without that, he added, you have no way to seriously reduce greenhouse gas emissions that we have at the rate we need to do it. By refusing to embrace a fracking ban, Biden is following the well-trodden liberal path of rhetorically acknowledging the threat posed by climate change, while rejecting the measures necessary to actually deal with it. If he really believes, as per the language on his own official website, that, quote, climate change is the greatest threat facing our country and our world, he and other liberal politicians should start behaving like that threat is real. And it's not only the politicians that are framing fracking in a way that is, at the very least, overly cautious. Here's a piece written by Joshua Cho of Fairness and Accuracy in Reporting, published at fair.org. In last week's vice presidential debate between Senator Kamala Harris and Vice President Mike Pence, Harris reiterated Democratic nominee Joe Biden's rejection of a fracking ban, despite her earlier call for one when she was a presidential candidate. Quote, I will repeat, and the American people know, that Joe Biden will not ban fracking. That is a fact, Harris said. Harris emphasized that Biden believes in science, claimed that he, quote, understands that the west coast of our country is burning, and, quote, sees what is happening on the Gulf states, which are being battered by storms, and that he has, quote, seen and talked with the farmers in Iowa whose entire crops have been destroyed because of floods. One can only wonder whether Biden or Harris truly believe in science when they pretend a fracking ban and a host of other strong climate measures are not urgent necessities required immediately. In 2018, the UN's Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change announced that carbon pollution needed to be cut by 45% by 2030 in order to keep the planet below the critical 1.5 degrees Celsius warming threshold to prevent irreversible planetary devastation. As time goes on, more reports inform us that pollution and the climate crisis are actually even worse than we thought. Yet whenever there are discussions about enacting a national fracking ban, corporate media seem to prioritize the supposed short-term political risks to Democrats' electoral prospects or potential economic downturns over the long-term prospects for human civilization's survival. When there was a discussion of Senator Bernie Sanders and Representative Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez's bill for a nationwide fracking ban earlier this year, the New York Times, in a story titled, In Crucial Pennsylvania, Democrats Worry a Fracking Ban Could Sink Them, cited a few state Democratic politicians claiming that any presidential candidate who supports a national fracking ban would risk losing Pennsylvania in the general election. The Times trivialized the issue by reducing it to a, quote, political bet, with the highest stakes being the mere loss of a democratic presidency, as opposed to dooming humanity to climate apartheid, and ultimately losing human life as we know it to natural disasters. The Times' Lisa Friedman and Shane Goldmacher wrote, quote, A pledge to ban all hydraulic fracturing, better known as fracking, could jeopardize any presidential candidate's chances of winning this most critical of battleground states, and thus the presidency itself. In some ways, the fracking ban is indicative of the entire political bet undergirding the candidacies of Mr. Sanders and Ms. Warren that the 2020 campaign will not be won by appeals to the narrow interests of traditional swing voters, but through the mass mobilization of an energized electorate. NPR's story 
Proposals to ban fracking could hurt Democrats in key states. Likewise, made dubious pronouncements on the opinions of swing state voters, the focal point of the story, as opposed to what actions are required to resolve the climate crisis. Quote, Climate change is a top issue in the Democratic presidential primaries, and some candidates have taken relatively aggressive policy stands, including vows to ban hydraulic fracturing. But some Democrats worry that could push moderate voters in key swing states to re-elect President Trump next November. In a swing state like Pennsylvania, a major gas producer, fracking and energy are key issues. Even a small segment of voters swayed one way or another, could change the election. After the primaries, it's clear that corporate media believe it's their duty to function as Biden's de facto campaign manager by explaining to voters what Biden's position on a fracking ban actually is, as well as advising Biden to reject a fracking ban because they claim that would be an electoral disaster. Soon after the debate, Quartz explained that Biden and Harris don't support a fracking ban because it, quote, tempts political suicide in swing states like Pennsylvania and Ohio, where fossil fuels still rule. Why an electoral disaster ought to be prioritized over a civilizational disaster is never explained. The Los Angeles Times headline, Joe Biden's Pennsylvania Hurdle, Voters Who Fear a California-Style Energy Plan, presented swing voters as an obstacle to Biden's electoral ambitions, as opposed to presenting Biden as an obstacle to stronger environmental protection and meaningful climate action for the country. The LA Times described Biden's opposition to a fracking ban as a, quote, nuanced position, and characterized Biden's climate plans as robust, despite his opposition to climate action on the scale of a Green New Deal. Instead of advising Biden to go after younger voters who care more about climate action, the LA Times advised Biden to go after swing voters who don't care as much. Quote, Television commentary about the presidential race may focus on the future of the Supreme Court and other national questions, but in the states that will actually decide the election, local issues often matter more. In this corner of America, that means fracking. Voters whose economic well-being depends on extracting natural gas are extremely skeptical of any politician who would inhibit it. The key for Biden, party strategists believe, is to maintain a carefully balanced approach, even if that frustrates activists on both sides. However, as journalist David Sirota of Daily Poster pointed out, this flimsy basis for rejecting a fracking ban isn't even true. Quote, there's just one problem with that storyline. It isn't substantiated by empirical data. Indeed, the idea that a fracking ban is a political poison in Pennsylvania is a fantastical tale fabricated by a national press corps that refuses to let public opinion data get in the way of fossil fuel propaganda and manufactured narrative. And while there is more to this specific piece at FAIR.org by Joshua Cho, Uh, We're going to move on because we've got a couple more stories related to Pennsylvania. This one is published at pencapital-star.com, which is the Pennsylvania Capital Star. This is written by Ryan Dito, D-E-T-O. On Thursday, President Trump held a campaign rally in Latrobe, Pennsylvania, just an hour east of Pittsburgh. There, he lobbed many insults and made many false claims, but arguably none more egregious than one about jobs in Pennsylvania's natural gas industry. According to WESA-FM editor Chris Potter, Trump claimed during his speech that there are currently 940,000 natural gas jobs in Pennsylvania. That's a gross exaggeration. The industry is frequently referred to as the fracking industry, a reference to hydraulic fracturing, the process that's used to extract natural gas from solid rock. According to multiple analysis and data from state and federal labor departments, there are around 26,000 jobs in Pennsylvania's oil and gas industries. Trump inflated the amount of jobs in Pennsylvania by more than 3,500%. 
according to a March analysis of federal employment data by environmental group Food and Water Watch. There were approximately 636,000 jobs directly related to oil and natural gas extraction from 2016 to 2018 nationally. In Pennsylvania, there were 26,000 jobs in these industries during this time span. Since 2018, the gas industry has struggled as gas prices remain low. In the Pittsburgh region, hundreds of jobs have been lost, and large fracking companies are divesting from the area. Another analysis corroborate these other analyses corroborate these figures. According to the Pennsylvania Department of Labor and Industry, there are between 20,000 to 50,000 jobs in and supported by the state's natural gas industry. According to the Bureau of Labor Statistics, in 2017, there were about 967,000 total jobs in the oil and gas and supported industries throughout America. But nothing close to those figures when just counting Pennsylvania jobs. In fact, it's hard to find job figures as high as Trump is claiming in any Pennsylvania sector. Only jobs in trade, transportation, and utilities, and education and health services have figures over 940,000 jobs in the Commonwealth. And this next piece is published at theguardian.com and is written by Nina Lacani. In early August, Ginny Kerslake's lush green yard in a middle-class Pennsylvania suburb turned into a muddy river thanks to another spill at the pipeline drilling site opposite her house. A couple of days later, 10,000 gallons of drilling mud or bentonite clay contaminate, contaminated a popular recreational lake that also provides drinking water for residents of Chester County. The spills are down to construction of the Mariner East Pipelines, a beleaguered multi-billion dollar project to transport highly volatile liquids extracted by fracking gas shale fields in western Pennsylvania to an export facility in Delaware County in the east, ready to ship to Europe to manufacture plastics. In Pennsylvania, four years after Trump beat Hillary Clinton by 44,292 votes to win the state, the controversial pipeline project has helped make fracking a political flashpoint in the debate over energy, the climate crisis, environmental inequalities, and the influence of big business. Fracking was a hot topic in this week's vice presidential debate, and the Republican Party has blanketed the state with ads falsely claiming a Biden administration would ban the practice. Climate activists were unimpressed by the debate, but like many anti-fracking voters, Kerslake is hopeful that a Democratic administration might at least be persuadable on the issue. Quote, The direct impact in our township has opened our eyes to how elected officials and government agencies we expect to protect us, but don't. Without fracking, there are no pipelines and vice versa said Kerslake, speaking in front of the noisy, unsightly drilling site, which can operate from 7 a.m. to 7 p.m., six days a week. The ME Horizontal Drilling Horizontal Directional Drilling HDD project, which is subject to multiple criminal and regulatory investigations, has caused major disruption to dozens of suburban and rural communities, contaminated surface and groundwater sources, in hundreds of mud spills, and created countless sinkholes in parks, roads, and yards since construction began in early 2017. At least 105,000 people live within a half-mile blast radius of the ME pipeline system, which carries highly flammable, odorless, and colorless gases in liquefied form. Many more Pennsylvanians attend schools, libraries, and workplaces in close proximity. Pennsylvanians suffer the country's second-worst air quality, thanks to greenhouse gas-emitting industries. And according to one recent poll, 83% of voters in the state think climate change is a serious problem, and 58% look unfavorably at lawmakers who oppose strong action to combat it. Despite dwindling public support for fracking, 
The state's governor, Democrat Tom Wolf, recently signed a bipartisan bill approving $670 million in tax breaks for the natural gas industry, which environmentalists condemned as irreconcilable with greenhouse gas emissions targets. The push to make Pennsylvania a petrochemical hub is mostly about producing single-use plastics, not cheap energy to heat our homes, and expanding fracking will tie us for years to climate change gases. This is not what most Pennsylvanians want, but there's a gap in understanding, said Kerslake, who was defeated in this year's primary for state representative after conservative nonprofit groups linked to the natural gas industry funded a half million dollars worth of attack ads against anti-pipeline candidates. Chester County, a semi-rural middle-class area with about 525,000 inhabitants, mostly white but with growing Latino and Asian populations, is a swing county. In 2012, Obama narrowly lost to Mitt Romney. But four years later, it was the only county Hillary Clinton flipped in Pennsylvania, winning by almost nine points. It wasn't enough. Clinton failed to hold on to the state, won twice by Bill Clinton and Barack Obama after hemorrhaging voters in rural and suburban districts. Until 2016, Pennsylvania had voted for the Democrat in six straight presidential elections, but the party's decline was a long time in the making. Quote, Pennsylvania has been bleeding out Democratic voters for decades. It's insane to think the Democrats can win here in the long term without winning over more working-class voters. Not being Trump isn't enough, said Jonathan Smucker, co-founder of the grassroots movements Lancaster Stands Up and PA Stands Up. In an average of national polls on Friday showed Joe Biden leading Trump by more than 10 percentage points, but only 7.1 points in Pennsylvania, according to the website 538. This is up from 4.2 points last month. Analysts agree that Pennsylvania is a must-win state this November if the Democrats are to take back the White House, which means Biden convincing urban and suburban voters concerned about the climate crisis and the economy that his ambitious $2 trillion climate plan is also an ambitious jobs plan. But it's unclear whether the messaging is getting through as campaigning is overshadowed and hampered by the COVID pandemic. Joan, a librarian who declined to give her full name, said the climate crisis had been surpassed by immediate concerns. Quote, I worry about the health and safety of the pipelines and climate change, but most people are overwhelmed by the immediacy of the pandemic and unemployment and voting. It's too much to navigate, she said. Multiple pipelines run about 50 feet from the library where she works, visited by about 50,000 people annually. Quote, the climate crisis is a very big problem, and I worry about environmental destruction. But what are the alternatives? You have to provide energy, said Gwen White, a retired banker who plans to vote for Biden, but was unaware of his climate plan. Trump, on the other hand, is sticking to his plan of appealing to his base by falsely claiming Biden will destroy hundreds of thousands of jobs and make heating unaffordable by banning fracking. Despite Trump's chiding, Biden is largely supportive of fracking and only backs banning it on federal lands and offshore, which would have minimal impact in Pennsylvania. In addition, fracking job figures touted by the industry and repeated by Trump and Mike Pence are wildly inflated. In 2017, only 26,000 jobs in Pennsylvania were directly related to oil and natural gas extraction, of which about 18,000 were created by the fracking boom, according to the Bureau of Labor Statistics. And next up is a bit more on that poll of Pennsylvania voters. Um, This is written by Ryan Dito and it's published at pghcitypaper.com. Politically speaking, the discussion around fracking in Pennsylvania lacks nuance. Fracking is a process of extracting natural gas from underground deposits, and it's been ongoing on a large scale throughout much of Pennsylvania for the last 10 to 15 years. Debates over fracking usually end in people saying fracking is a necessary job creator 
and must be left to its own devices, or with environmentally-minded people saying they want to end it completely. Most polls frame it this way, too, usually just with a simple question like, do you favor or oppose fracking? The latest polls showed that 52% of Pennsylvanians oppose it, by the way. The poll, conducted from August 13 to 19 among 801 registered voters in Pennsylvania, shows that 66% of voters support placing stronger regulations on oil and gas fracking compared to 23% of voters that oppose it. When just looking at the Pittsburgh market, 64% support stronger regulations and 26% oppose. Katie Bloom, the political director for Conservation Voters of Pennsylvania, says the poll shows that a shift is occurring among voters where reigning in fracking is becoming more popular than not. Quote, I think there is a shift. I think after the attorney general investigation, people's eyes have been opened, she says, referring to Pennsylvania Attorney General Josh Shapiro's grand jury indictment against fracking companies who have polluted the state. Additionally, when asked about support for, quote, phasing out oil and gas fracking by the year 2050 and requiring utilities to use renewable energy like wind and solar instead, which is essentially the same as Biden's plan and the plan endorsed by some Western Pennsylvania Democrats like Representative Mike Doyle, 62% of voters support that measure and 61% in the Pittsburgh market. Quote, Pennsylvania has been an extractive state with lumber, oil, natural gas, etc. We can't afford to have a bust again, says Bloom, but we can transition to clean energy that is on a federal platform, or at least Biden's platform. We want fossil fuel workers to put food on the table, but we have to think toward the future. Even when asked if Pennsylvania should phase out all new oil and gas fracking permits on public lands and waters, voters gave their support 59% to 27%. Allegheny County has fracking rigs on public land in Deer Lakes Park and at the Pittsburgh International Airport, and voters in this market still support phasing out all new oil and gas permits on public lands, 46%. To 40%. And next up is a piece published at WGNO.com. And this is written by Larissa Casillas. Trump administration seeks to relax oil drilling rules through the U.S. Forest Service rule change. A new rule proposed by the U.S. Forest Service is conservationists saying the Trump administration wants to relax oil and gas drilling rules on Forest Service lands. There are currently 5,490 federal oil and gas leases covering about 4.2 million acres, or 2% of national forest system lands. The West Virginia Rivers Coalition does not want the Mongahela Forest with its many headwaters to be one of them. Quote, it's important for us to protect these headwaters, which turn to, in turn protect not only drinking water and surface water for our state, but also the region, said Dr. Sarah Cross with the coalition. Although there are currently no active gas and oil wells on the Monong- Monongahela forest, they say the plan proposed on September 1st could lead to this. When it comes to this proposed rule, it would make it a lot easier to implement oil and gas drilling on our national forest service lands. It would also reduce the public input on the process, said Cross. Charlie Byrd, the executive director of the Independent Oil and Gas Association of West Virginia, says the rule is only streamlining the process. Quote, They're just really proposing to clarify all the processes that the Bureau of Land Management and others have in place, he said. It pretty clearly states that it doesn't relieve the oil and gas operator from any responsibility to protect the land and the resources and the environment. But Cross says up to a million gallons of water are used in hydraulic fracking. Quote, There would be a lot more soil erosion, roads cut into our national forests, but also 
We're very concerned about that much water being taken out of our streams. Then after the fracking process takes place, you have a tremendous amount of water that has to be hauled out, she said. The Forest Service is taking public comment on the rule proposal until November 2nd. Next up is a piece published at counterpunch.org, written by Margaret Wadsworth. Trump's plan to frack Chaco Canyon. As communities across New Mexico deal with the deadly coronavirus pandemic, the federal government is attempting a massive land grab, offering millions of acres of public land near Chaco Canyon National Historic Park to oil and gas drillers for fracking. This plan has been slowed down before, but it needs to be stopped entirely. In February, the Interior Department's Bureau of Land Management released its long-awaited draft resource management plan amendment. Instead of protecting public lands and natural resources, it essentially rubber-stamps 3,000 new fracking wells, some in areas already heavily burdened by fossil fuel development and the resulting pollution. This amendment blatantly ignores the cumulative impacts of fracking on the region, nearby communities, and the climate. New Mexico's air and water are already threatened by fossil fuel drilling, and more fracking means more emissions of carbon dioxide and methane. Some of the most heartbreaking impacts can be seen near Chaco Canyon, where breathtaking archaeological sites provide a glimpse into 11th century life. The Chaco area is a sacred place and ancestral homeland of the Pueblo, Navajo, Hopi, and Zuni people. To the residents of the Navajo Nation, this land is home, but to the oil and gas industries, this is land to exploit. At the height of the COVID-19 crisis, the Bureau of Land Management tried to conduct, quote, virtual public hearings on its fracking plan. This drew swift criticism across the state, with leaders like U.S. Representative Deb Holland and U.S. Senator Tom Udall condemning the move. The vast majority of Navajo Nation homes lack high-speed internet access, which means community members already struggling with a deadly virus could not meaningfully participate in hearings about a drilling plan that would bring more pollution into their region. Under pressure from the New Mexico Congressional Delegation and the Greater Chaco Coalition, made up of indigenous groups and environmental organizations, of which Food and Water Action is part. The Interior Department agreed to extend the comment period last spring. While winning an extension was important, it is winding down this month, and our real goal is not merely to delay this awful drilling plan. What we need is an entirely new plan that protects our land, air, water, and people. That would include a new environmental impact statement that properly considers all of the research documenting the impacts of fracking on community health. Instead of handing over public lands to the failing fracking industry, we should support those fighting to protect regional communities and sacred sites from destruction and preserving access to the groundwater necessary for life. Thousands of new fracking wells means billions of gallons of water will be wasted on drilling for fossil fuels. That drilling will create billions of gallons of toxic, potentially radioactive wastewater, which the oil and gas companies want to treat and use to irrigate crops. We know that fracking causes serious health problems for people living near wells, including increased rates of asthma, migraines, cardiovascular disease, and neurological disorders. Recent research even shows a link between low birth weight babies and mothers who live near wells. Tribal communities have been forced to bear the burdens of fossil fuel exploitation. If we are serious about fighting for environmental justice, this must stop. There is no better time than right now, and no better place than Chaco Canyon. Next up, a piece published by usnews.com. And this is a piece written by the Associated Press. Colorado officials have approved new rules that require air pollution monitoring at oil and gas sites during early stages of operations, 
the first state regulatory system of its kind in the country, the State Department of Public Health and Environment said. The Colorado Air Quality Control Commission unanimously approved the program Wednesday. The rules require companies to monitor emissions during the drilling of wells, hydraulic fracturing, and during the first six months of production, the Daily Sentinel reported. The newly passed initiatives are a continuation of the Commission's efforts to implement a 2019 measure that required the Commission to overhaul regulations governing how oil and gas extraction works in the state. In December, regulators also adopted rules that tightened leak detection, emissions control, and other measures. The State Air Pollution Control Division estimates that the rules will cut state emissions of nitrous oxide by more than 2,300 tons annually. And from new regulations in Colorado, we go to Michigan for fines for violations of existing regulations. This is published at MLive.com. It's written by Garen Ellison. Federal regulators plan to fine a northern Michigan oil and gas company $73,755 for keeping inaccurate records on injection well operation in four counties. Paxton Resources of Gaylord failed to properly monitor and report pressure on seven injection wells spread across Antrim, Alcona, Oscoda, and Otsego counties, according to a proposed U.S. Environmental Protection Agency consent order. From May 2014 to August 2016, Paxton failed to record and report weekly injection pressure, failed to monitor weekly annuals, annulus pressure, and record accurate measurements according to the proposed EPA order dated August 27. Paxton also allowed an unauthorized employee to sign monitoring reports for four years, the EPA alleged. The EPA says those actions violate the Safe Drinking Water Act. In a public notice statement, the EPA called the alleged violation significant because accurate injection well pressure monitoring and reporting is, quote, vital to protecting underground sources of drinking water and ensuring wells have mechanically have mechanical integrity, are not leaking, and are being operated for the purposes for which they were permitted. Class II wells inject brine from oil and gas production deep underground, either as wastewater disposal or to displace fossil fuels for extraction in the hydraulic fracturing or fracking process. Pressure monitoring helps detect leaks that could allow injected fluids to spurt back up the well casing and reach the level where groundwater is used for drinking. Quote, Failing to take weekly annulus pressure measurements and submitting inaccurate reports were potentially serious impediments to the discovery of potential leaks and threats to underground drinking water sources, the EPA wrote. Paxton Resources is owned by Scott D. Lampert, a former board chairman of the Michigan Oil and Gas Association, who serves on several civic boards around Gaylord. According to its website, Paxton explores for oil and gas in several states and operates wells in Michigan and Indiana. And finally for this episode is a piece written by Nick Martin. It's published at newrepublic.com. How the EPA is screwing Oklahoma's tribes. Jim Inhofe might be best known as the dipshit who brought a snowball to the floor of Congress as, quote, proof that climate change is not real. But the Republican senator from Oklahoma is no fool. In 2005, Congress passed a bill ostensibly aimed at authorizing federal funds for the upkeep and creation of federally aided roads and highways. At 836 pages long, it was an impressively boring bill, reading as little more than a list of construction projects in need of funding and designations and redesignations as to what roads fall under federal highway and interstate programs. It was, in other words, the perfect place for Inhofe to hide some equally sterile lines protecting gas and oil interests 
against the peskiness of tribal sovereignty and land rights to be employed if the worst came to pass and tribes in his state were able to reclaim their lands. Quote, Notwithstanding any other provision of the law, if the administrator of the Environmental Protection Agency determines that a regulatory program submitted by the state of Oklahoma for approval by the administrator under a law administered by the administrator meets applicable requirements of the law, and the administrator approves the state to administer the state program under the law with respect to areas in the state that are not Indian country, on request of the state, the administrator shall approve the state to administer the state program in the areas of the state that are in Indian country without any further demonstration of authority by the state. In layman's terms, if the state of Oklahoma asks, the Environmental Protection Agency wields the authority to give the state government regulatory control over all environmental issues that take place on tribal lands in Oklahoma. Now, 15 years later, this long dormant rider has been activated, all because the U.S. government can't decide whether it wants tribal sovereignty and the people entrusted with enacting it to exist. On Monday, the Young Turks journalist Tihua Chang reported that the Trump administration's EPA, helmed by Andrew Wheeler, who worked for Inhofe for 14 years, cited the above rider in an October 1 letter granting the state of Oklahoma's request for regulatory control. Given the cozy relationship between Oklahoma lawmakers and the gas and oil industry, the EPA's decision effectively hands power over hazardous waste dumping, fracking, and the purposeful diversion of industrialized farm runoff on tribal lands to a slim number of industry executives. This was not a random chess move. It was an industry reacting to the prospect of having to consult tribal governments about what happens on their land. Specifically, it's a reaction to the Supreme Court's 5-4 ruling this past July that the Muscogee Creek Nation's reservation, as detailed in its 1868 post-Civil War treaty with the United States, was never dissolved by an act of Congress and thus is still a legally active part of Indian country. While the ruling only applied to the Muscogee Nation and concerned only crimes prosecuted under the Major Crimes Act, it was clear that McGirt versus Oklahoma, as the case was called, could pave the way for a multitude of similar cases. With the reservation's borders and sovereignty being upheld, the other tribes in Oklahoma, most of which claim similarly ignored but still intact treaties, have since been tacitly encouraged by the positive outcome to pursue legal challenges of their own to regain jurisdiction over their lands. Should all of the tribes successfully assert their treaty rights, roughly half of Oklahoma would cease to be state land and instead be what it has always been, Indian country. In the months since the McGirt decision, a whirlwind of studies and papers and talks have attempted to predict what kinds of jurisdictional powers could be wielded by the Muscogee Nation and other tribes able to join them in upholding their reservations. Provided the right legal environment is attained, tribal governments overseeing reservations can wield the power to impose taxes and regulations on non-native industries that want to operate within their boundaries. Most experts analyzing the legal implications agreed that the tribes would not be able to enforce regulations or tax non-tribal citizens that own fee land, meaning it has been deeded to an individual and is not held in trust by the Department of the Interior in the reservation. That is, tribal citizens would be the ones primarily affected by McGirt. But there are exceptions to this rule, namely for Oklahoma's petroleum industry. In the 1981 case, Montana versus the United States, the Supreme Court held that tribes can enforce regulations on non-tribal citizens if these residents consent to it, or if the action by the non-citizens, quote, 
threatens or has some direct effect on the political integrity, the economic security, or the health or welfare of the tribe. And since fracking and hog farm runoff are harmful to a citizen's health, Oklahoma's extractive and agricultural industries would probably have to actually consult with tribes before taking on new projects. According to this logic, a paper published this summer argued, quote, Roughly 25% of Oklahoma's oil and gas well and 60% of its oil refineries are impacted by the court's decision. Barring state intervention, the authors added, the tribes would be able to enact a severance tax on any national natural resources removed from the reservation. Predicting this, the Seminole Nation of Oklahoma issued an 8% severance tax on oil and gas leases on its land in 2018. Conservative politicians in the gas and oil industry have reacted to the McGirt decision with three months of fear-mongering, proclaiming that the change in jurisdiction would be wildly unjust for the state citizens. In fact, their biggest point of concern remains their own financial self-interest. Oklahoma Governor Kevin Stitt, a Republican who is also an enrolled citizen of the Cherokee Nation, has spent the duration of his first term working against the tribal nations in his state, most notably on the gaming compacts that allow the tribes to operate casino and gaming operations. In the aftermath of McGirt, Stitt convened a commission to look at the projected impact of the ruling, but did not tap a single tribal leader for the commission. Instead, he stuffed it with three executives from the petroleum industry. Stitt also waited just two weeks to put in the state's request for regulatory control to the EPA, opting not to consult with tribes before he reached out to industry executives. Wheeler, Stitt, and Inhofe, as well as their beloved petroleum executives, have been very clear about what they don't want. They do not want tribes enforcing environmental regulations because tribal governments will likely balk at poisoning their own citizens and push back against industry interests. This is why Stitt and Inhofe, along with Attorney General William Barr, have recommended federal legislation to address McGirt because they want the case's effect and the powers of the tribes to be as minimal as possible so that they can continue to ratchet up gas and oil production in the state. The Muscogee Nation, in a statement, said it was, quote, disappointed by the decision, language echoed by Cherokee Nation Principal Chief Chuck Hoskin, Jr. It was also predictable. Oklahoma's application for this end run around the tribes was always going to be approved. And the EPA has been so gutted and deregulated by Wheeler and the Trump administration that even if the agency had not granted Oklahoma's requests, few taxes or regulations could plausibly have scared the gas and oil industry away from Indian country. While the tribal nations could mount a legal challenge to prevent their lands from being the playgrounds of the wealthy oil barons, there aren't many options to update Inhofe's law without flipping both the Senate and the White House. The hard truth is that Inhofe, crafty in the insidious fashion of the long-privileged, constructed his two-paragraph-long lifeboat 15 years ago. Now he and his buddies can finally tumble in. And this is one of many reasons why... Um, Indian organizations in the United States have long sought and fought for their land back and have started a new public campaign for land back. You can go to landback.org and read more about the details there. That'll wrap up this episode of Frack You Very Much. Remember, you can check out all the back episodes at frackyouverymuch.com, both the general news episodes like this one and the episodes in which I read from the compendium of scientific, medical, and media findings demonstrating risks and harms of fracking. You can follow on Twitter as well at FYVMshow. And you can listen to this podcast and all my podcasts playing 24-7 
at movingtrainradio.com. Here is the band A Tribe Called Red with the track Land Back. Thanks for listening.